Well, good morning. I'm not your pastor. I'm trying to look like him. I'm growing that in, but uh, it's not as cool as his. How many of you guys knew he wasn't going to be here today? All right, some of you guys did, and you came anyway. That's good. Well, he was throwing me a bone, letting me preach for you guys, because um, I don't get too much. I'm your male associational missionary, and uh, so I work wherever across the street is from here. Um, and uh, take your Bibles real quick and turn me to Isaiah chapter 47. I was uh, texting with him yesterday, and he said that um, I had all the time in the world that I wanted, so I'll try to keep it under an hour and a half, uh, and that you guys would listen very well. Uh, another thing is, the second second service is always better. I used to preach two services when I was a church planter in Maine. And uh, we had two services that I, I preached there every week. And, um, and uh, the second one was always better because you didn't have to be done. You know, like the last service here, I had to be done at 9.30 and I almost didn't make it. I mean, at 10.50. And you guys were out there waiting for me to shut up. And, you know, people are coming out. and I'm just glad you're here because I can preach as long as I want to now. Because um, I had to cut the last scene. I started to tell that first service just to, you know take the first half then and go ahead and preach all I wanted to preach and come back for the second service and then I get the last half but then y'all wouldn't get the first half so we're glad that you're here uh, and Isaiah 47 I'm going to read the uh, first 11 verses I hope you'll follow along with me I'm going to preach this morning about uh, a sermon I'll entitle Nations in the Hand of an Angry God Nations in the Hands of an Angry God and you'll understand why that, that is here in uh, just a little bit. I'm coming in a little bit loud, but y'all can deal with that. Isaiah chapter 47, verse 1. Come down and sit on the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind them. Remove your veil and take off the skirt and uncover the thigh and pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame will be seen. And I will take vengeance and I will not arbitrate with a man. As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no longer be called the Lady of the Kingdoms. For I was angry with my people, and I have profaned my inheritance, you given, and given them into your hand, and showed them no mercy. And you showed them no mercy on the elderly, and you laid your yoke very heavily. And you said, I shall be a lady forever, so that you did not take these things to heart, nor remember the latter end of them. Therefore, hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, who dwell in securely, who will say in your heart, I am and there is no one else besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I call, know the loss of children. But these two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon you in their fullness because of the multitude of your sorceries and the great abundance of your enchantments. For you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. And you have said in your heart, I am. 
and there is no one else besides me. Therefore, evil shall come upon you. You shall not know from where it arises. And trouble shall fall upon you, and you will not be able to put it off. And desolation shall come upon you, and suddenly, which you shall not know. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you, Lord, that you do put breath in our lungs, and it belongs to you. And God, I pray that what you have put in mind over the next few minutes, God, you will allow me to put forth in praise. As your word is true and as your spirit may fill me, I pray your anointing would come and it would preach the word for me. That God, through me, you would speak to this uh, congregation, your body of Christ. I declare unto you my complete dependence. Lord, I have nothing to offer but you. And so, God, I ask that you would speak through me, that you would empower me. And God, that you would give this congregation ears to hear Lord, that they may be built up so that you may be honored and glorified. That God, through the church, your manifold wisdom may be put on display for a watching world. We pray these things in Jesus' name and amen. Many of you did Halloween yesterday. And um, during that time, you may or may not have realized that about 500 years ago, there was a man named Martin Luther And Martin Luther went to the church at Wittenberg, Germany, on what we call Halloween. They call it Old Hallow's Eve on October the 31st. And he nailed his 95 theses to the door at Wittenberg. Now, it's the first time that the Catholic Church had ever been challenged openly in such a manner. And it would lead to the first time the Catholic Church ever lost. Because in that time, the Catholic Church was the ruler. Now... About 275 years ago in America, you had a first great awakening. And it wasn't preceded by a nailing of things to the door. It was preceded by a number of preachers, Puritan preachers, who began to preach the word up and down the New England and the uh, mid-Atlantic coasts. One of those preachers was named Jonathan Edwards. And Edwards preached a sermon called, The Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Many of you have probably read at least excerpts from it in your high school English class and And we're going to see here that the language that he used, it it was so so piercing, it was so harsh, at least from our perspective. Uh, It dealt with subjects uh, about hell and dealt with the fact that God is a God who owes none of us anything but hell itself. And we were nothing more than a sinner hanging over on a spider's thread over hell with God no more uh, obligated to keep that spider's um, uh, web from dropping on anyone. That stirred up the first great awakening. Isaiah here was preaching and prophesying to a group of Israelites who would later go into captivity. And this message is a message of hope for them, a taunting of the one who would take them captive. However, what you have probably in the title of your chapter 47, if you have a a title there over your verses there, it says, The Humiliation of Babylon. And that's what the text is about. So I want to go into this just a little bit and pull out three things that we really need to see from these uh, verses. Now let me set the stage because this is going to be important. Um, A lot of dates here, but follow me. 
he was preaching here in the 680s B.C., okay? So he's preaching uh, 700 years before the birth of Christ, give or take. Now, the fall of Judah that we read about, the beginning of the, uh, the captivity as we know it, happened in 586. So about 100 years prior to Isaiah, or following Isaiah's preaching. Okay? So Babylon took over Jerusalem 100 years after Isaiah's preaching this message. And this message is about the destruction or the humiliation of Babylon, which would take place 70 years, according to Daniel, after their taking of Jerusalem. Okay? So, in a nutshell, this prophecy is preached from Isaiah toward a Babylon 170 years later. So, that having been said, let's follow along what Isaiah says in this text. It will give us three things. First one I want you to see is the providence of God. The providence of God. In verse 1 through 6, and we won't read it, reread it for the sake of time, but in verses 1 through 6, what you're going to see is this queen of the world, king of the world, high and lifted up. O daughter of Babylon, sit on the ground. Okay, so he told this king of the, king of the earth, king of the world. You kind of can see Leonardo DiCaprio here sitting on the front of the Titanic and saying, I'm the king of the world, I'm the king of the world. That's, that's the way Babylon felt, okay? When it says virgin daughter, it, it means one who is unconquered. It, it means one who has not uh, been taken over by anyone, and, and they say will not. If you look down there in verse um, uh, maybe 6, 7, 7, it says, And I have said, I will be a lady forever. So not only were they the king of the world, they thought they were going to be the king of the world forever, okay? They were the world's superpower. They were the biggest one at the time. They had the most uh, ferocious army at the time, the biggest army. I mean, it had taken people left and right. The Assyrians controlled the Babylon Empire. The Babylonians came and took it from them. And the Assyrians were some bad dudes. Uh, in fact, Habakkuk, when he talked about his prophecy, God told him he was going to use the, the Babylonians to discipline his people Israel. And Habakkuk looked at him and said, you're going to take an, a wicked and evil people, the most wicked on the earth, and judge your people? Are you crazy? That's what Habakkuk said. God said, yep, that's what I'm going to do. And so what we see here is the providence of God. There are times where God raises up things and does things just for His purposes that we may understand. Okay, that's not any big deal, Jason. That, everybody knows that. God does some things occasionally that He says in other parts of Scripture are wrong to accomplish purposes that He says are right. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, take, for example, Pharaoh. God tells Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, he says to Pharaoh, For this reason, or for this cause, I have raised you up, that you might put on display my wonders. Okay? In Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, that's what he tells him. And so God raised up Pharaoh, made him a world power at that time, to enslave his people Israel and put them under tremendous uh, pain and suffering and, and, and terror for 400 years, just so that God can squish him. Why? 
and show my wonders. And when you go over in the book of Joshua, they get to the city of, uh, there on the Jericho, on the cross of Jordan, and Rahab, the prostitute, when they get there, what's the first thing that she says? We've heard about you. We've heard about what you did to Pharaoh and the kings of the Amorites. And what we don't want none, or at least my family doesn't. So God tells Pharaoh, I've raised you up to judge you so that everybody would know. Another example, Jesus, he tells, um, he tells Pilate, Pilate, uh, Pilate looks at him, they're having a conversation, and, and uh, Pilate says, don't you know that I have the power to crucify you? Why aren't you answering me? Because Jesus wasn't answering. And so he tells him, well, don't you know I have the power to crucify you or let you live? And Jesus tells him in John chapter 19, verse 11, he says, look, the power that you have, you only have it because it was given to you. And of course, he tells him that the greater sin is for the people who put him there, the Jews. But nevertheless, God raised them up to carry out his will. Now, here's the thing. God raised the Jews up to do something that in this book he told people not to do. Okay? So God has two wills, if you'll let me. A will of decree, what's going to happen. And a will of command, what he has commanded to happen or willed to happen in that sense of desire. So you have a will of decree and a will of desire. This is the will of desire. This is the will of command. He said, thou shalt not murder. Right? That's very clear in the text of Scripture. Now, when we get to Jesus' day, he raised up the Jews and Pilate so that they would murder his son. Right? If you look at Acts chapter 2, verse 23, it says, You killed him. This is Peter, Peter preaching. He says, You killed him, but God preordained and foreordained set it up. So God set up the killing of his son. Of course, we know he foretold that you know, several centuries prior to that. But nevertheless, God did it. You want to know who killed Jesus? It wasn't the Romans and it wasn't the Jews. It was God. God raised up and ensured that somebody would murder his son. So here, will of command, nobody murder. Jesus comes, will of decree, it must happen. So in this scenario, you got a similar thing in Isaiah's day. God's uh, saying through Isaiah to the Babylonians, look, everything that you got, I gave you. The Syrians were holding Babylon. And the Babylonians came and got it. There was a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. And he eventually took Israel. And God told him, he said, look, I was angry with my people. Look at verse 6. I was angry with my people. I have profaned my inheritance. He says, I gave them to you. And then you treated them harshly. And we'll deal with that in a minute. But he said, I gave them to you. I used my providence. I raised you up. And I'm going to judge you for it now. There's a reason that this happened. God says, 70 years later, I'm going to deliver them and I'm going to destroy you. Depending on whether you want to say it's Darius who destroys them or Alexander the Great who destroys them. But nevertheless, they're going down in flames because verse 11 tells us, Evil shall come upon you and you don't know where it comes from. Trouble shall fall on you, and you don't know how to stop it. Desolation shall fall on you. This is a, a, a judgment. He says, I will spare no man there in verse 5. 3, I'm sorry. 
Judgment was coming, but he raised Babylon up to judge them. Now, what does that teach us? It teaches us that there is no such thing as luck. It teaches us that we don't say he was a lucky man or we got lucky that day or I was a lucky guy. No such thing as luck. God controls everything, everything. He is bringing to pass everything in existence in our world. God is the one who's in the Goodyear blimp. I know some of you watched football yesterday. If you were Georgia fans, you probably bailed out before the end. But you probably saw a blimp thing before you bailed out. If you're a Florida fan, just don't identify yourself. You might get hurt. I'm from Tennessee fans, so we won. Doesn't matter. God was in the Goodyear blimp, and he sees the view. And unlike the Goodyear blimp who just has a camera, God is calling the shots. He's making things happen that need to be happened. God hasn't created a world like the uh, deists would argue for and, and just backed away and let it spin. God has created a world and he's intricately involved in every part of it. He's in, in every shape, form, and fashion. One of my favorite quotes, maybe ever, I, I want to read to you, uh, Pastor John Piper, and this is just half of it, but it's lengthy. Listen, he says, the supreme uh, value of Christ's worth and his superiority in every way is over galaxies and endless reaches of space, over the earth from the top of the Mount Everest, 29,000 feet up to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, 36,000 feet down to the Mariana Trench. He's supreme over plants and animals from the blue whale to the microscopic killer viruses. He's over all weather and movements of the earth, hurricanes, tornadoes, monsoons, earthquakes, avalanches, Flood, snow, sleet, and rain. He's over chemical processes that heal and destroy cancer and AIDS and malaria and the flu and all the workings of the antibiotics that we have and a thousand healing medicines. He's supreme over all countries and governments and armies, over Al-Qaeda and ISIS and all terrorists and kidnappings and suicide bombings and beheadings, over Bin Laden and Azalkarwi, over all nuclear threats from Iran or Russia or North Korea. He's supreme over all politics and elections, over all media and news and entertainment and sports and leisure, over all education and universities and scholarship and science and research, over all business and finance and industry and manufacturing and transportation, over internet and information systems. And as Abraham Kuyper used to say, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And so we have a God who demonstrates His providence. Now, that's important for application. Because things go wrong in your life and in mine. Things happen that you and I don't understand. It can be the fact that somebody has wronged you. They have violated the will of command of God and yet you can be sure that if it has happened in your life it has crossed over the desk of God and it will take place because his allowance or his ordaining there is nothing that happens outside of the will of God 
And you can trust in a good God, a good and a wise and a holy God who never makes mistakes, who doesn't let things get out of control, who's sitting up there in heaven and, and looks down and look down one day and say, whoa, whoa, that got out of control. Rain that in. Send an angel to take care of that. Remember what he said to Peter? Peter, don't you think God could call 10,000 legions of angels to come down here and rescue me? But he's got it under control. And our lives are the same way. Every jot and tittle, we know, even though it's painful, even though it's suffering, even though we wonder why things are happening, God is providential in the care and the concern of everything. So we can look at Job, for instance, and we can have the response of Job or we can have the response of his wife when they lose all their kids and all their wealth and all their health and Job falls down on his knees and he said, Blessed be the name of the Lord. He said, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? What does his wife say? His wife comes in there and says, Man, I just cursed God and die. He obviously hates you. That's what, that's what he says. Curse God and die, man. God hates you. He's taken away everything that we have. There's no reason for this. And in Job's case, there wasn't. We read before all this happened, he was a righteous man. And she says, she says he's taken it all from you and we didn't do nothing. And even though Job says what he says, he spends the next 35 chapters whining about it, complaining about it, saying, God, I didn't do nothing. Why are you doing this? And I think it's okay to ask why. I really do. There's going to be things that come across in your life that you want to ask why on, and that's okay. As long as we're not calling it to question God's character, it's okay to ask why. And so Job did that throughout his life, throughout these 36 chapters, and then he gets to chapter 38. Y'all read Job chapter 38 through 42, the end of the book of Job? Because here's the thing about it. The point of the book of Job is you get to the end of it, and Job isn't told why. There's no answers as to why all his kids were killed. No answers as to why all his herds and all his uh, shepherds and all the people that he had were killed. There's no answer to why his health dissipated and was gone with with a bare exception of the fact that he was alive. He's given no reason. But in in chapter 38, verse 1, he says, says, God says, gird up your loins like a man. That's the King James. That's what I memorized it in. So you have to read whatever it says in chapter 38, verse 1. But he he says, put your big boy pants on, Job. He says, because I got something for you. And he begins there in chapter 38, verse 1. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know. Where were you when the oceans came and I said, thus far and no farther? Where were you, Job? I'm sure you know how to do that. Where are you when the calves give birth in the field? And don't you make that happen, Job? (laughs) He does that for two chapters. Chapter 38 and 39, you get to chapter 40, and Job's starting to back up and say, "Uh, God, yeah, um," God says, no, I ain't done yet. Chapter 40 and chapter 41, more the same thing. I mean, just one right after another, after another, after another, after another. Can you tell me all these things, Job? 
I think I'm the man here. Who are you to question me and my motivations and my character? And so he gets down to the end, Job does, and Job says, I've spoken about things that I did not know, and I repent in dust and ashes. Guys, we're not promised an answer, but we're promised that we have a God who is providentially watching over everything that we do, every molecule in this world, whether it's a bird and falling off the two uh, starlings that are sold for a penny in the market or some bird on the Amazon rainforest that falls dead and nobody even knows about it. God's sovereign over everything like that and he's watching over your life. Second thing I want you to see. Not only is God sovereign in, in his providence here in this situation, uh, but I want you to see God's um, uh, in, in verse 8. I want you to look down in verse 8 and what you're going to see there is uh, is the fact that God in Himself is preeminent. And the Babylonians are stealing, in a sense, the preeminence of God. I want you to look there in verse 8. Verse 8 says, You hear this now, you who are given these pleasures, who dwell in securely, who say in your heart, listen to this, I am and there is no one else besides me. I shall not sit as a widow nor know the loss of children. Basically, what they're doing there is they're stealing what belongs only to God. Now, let me show you that. Turn back to verse or chapter 45. I want you to just hear it and read it. And you'll, this will come out. It'll come so clear. The preeminence of God and what Babylon is doing here. Verse 45, or chapter 45, I'm sorry. Look at verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other God, and there is no other God besides me. Look down in verse 6. That they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none other besides me, that I am the Lord, and there is no other. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 of chapter 45, it says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 22. Look at me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Chapter 46, verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, till uh, things until yet to be done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So yes, Babylon in their... In these texts that we read, they have idolatry. If you read down in verse 9 of the chapter that we were in in 47, if you read 9, it talks about their sorceries. If you look in verse 6 and 7, you're talking about their brutality to the women and to the children and to the orphans and the elderly. They they were going to be judged for that. They were going to be judged for their pride, for their invincibility. In verse 7, they were going to be overtaken never forever. Uh, for their wealth and security there in verse uh, 1 and verse 8, for their lawlessness in verse 10, over and over, things to judge. But the main thing they're going to judge is, God's going to judge is what they've set up with there in verse 8. I am God and there is no other. That's what they said in their heart. One commentator said, Babylon is claiming the same uniqueness that God claims for himself. 
claiming the same sovereignty that only God has and claiming such an absolute status leaves no room for God's role in this world. Sounds kind of like America, right? He says, this is the height of foolish overconfidence for any nation, and let me add individual, that claims to have absolute authority is sure to face the wrath of an angry God who will not share his glory with anyone else. He says, I am preeminent. I am the glorified one. And I'm not giving that. I'm not sharing that with anybody else. We could go through the text, but let me hurry. We're good at playing armchair quarterbacks. I don't know if you're watching baseball. I like to watch baseball. Anybody watch the end of that World Series last night? All the way to the end. The bitter end. What was that guy thinking on first base? He was halfway to second on a, line, on a little blooper lounge drive. We're good at armchair quarterbacking, right? I bet you had some moments yesterday. Whatever football team you're for, if you're a pro football fan, you'll have them today. We can listen to those commentators that say they should have done this and they should have done that. And I don't agree with this call and I don't agree with that call. But see, you and I are good at that from this perspective. But we're not on the 50-yard line. We're in the game in God's economy. In, the, in, the, in God's economy, you and I are, are the players. We're not the coaches. We're standing in front of the coaches. We're not the fans. We're standing in front of the fans. We're not the scouts. We're not the millions of people on TV and the cameras. You and I are the players. We're the ones who are judged on our performance and whether or not we win the game. Except for one thing. There is only one test that I know of, and there may be others, but in our professional sports, we do testing for drugs. If you fail a drug test, you're out, Florida fans. <clears throat> fail a drug test, you're out, right? That's the only internal test that I know of. God, in this text, says to Babylon, I am going to destroy you because of what's in your heart. Not, yes, you've done all these things. Yes, there are bad stuff you did. But you have said in your heart, there's nobody else like me. You have taken God and reamed him out of your society. And said, there's no one other than me. I'm going to be the queen forever. Nobody can touch me. And he says, I'm going to judge you for that. And as players, we don't have anybody that leaks at our heart. And so let God look at your heart this morning. What are you trusting in? Because these Babylonians trusted in their armies. They trusted in their might. They trusted in the fact that they had been going for years and years. And, and the thing is, this hadn't even happened yet. This had not even happened yet. The Assyrians were still in control of the city of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar hadn't even come to power yet. But he said, you will do all these things. So let me ask you the question. What do you trust in? Do you trust in the things that you are securing? Because that's what Babylon was going to deal with. Your 401ks, your IRAs, your bank accounts. Do you trust in Edward Jones? i got a brother named Edward Jones, but that's not what I'm talking about. Do you trust in the fact that you're going to wake up in the morning? Edwards, when he preached that sermon back in 275 years ago, he said, look, God is a God who is obligated to no man to keep breath in your lungs. We sang today, 
the breath that we have, you've given us. God's not promising to give you another one. Do you trust that? What about the things that nobody knows about you that you'll deal with someday? Are you having an affair? Do you wish you were? Let God examine your heart. Do you have anger issues, anger problems that you need to deal with? These things that you don't think are a big deal. But God looks at your heart and he says these are big deals. Are you addicted to pornography or alcohol or lottery or we can name a bunch of things. Are you hung up on your video games or your football or your baseball? Or See, I've been preaching about football and baseball. Your pastor gave me a good line the other day. He said, it's pride that tells us we don't have pride. And pride was the link really to all these sins. And this morning now, we can look at God and we can say, God examined me, but there's nothing there. That's what we do most time at an invitation, right? I'm good. The word of God is preached. God comes by his spirit and he speaks to you. You know, you've got an issue with your smartphone. You get panicky when you leave the house because you needed to, to call somebody that you didn't call or you needed to text somebody on the way to work. Y'all get that way? It's not there and you're like, where's my phone? Will somebody call my phone. I've lost my phone. Don't look at me so spiritual. You know you're like that. What do we do with our smartphones? We talked about that yesterday. We were, we were trying to catch games here and games there on the phone, updates and on the computer. And we asked the question, well, what do we do? And we decided we listened to the radio a lot. We went to the tree stand to deer hunt with a little, um, you know, like Walkman when they were about this big, you know. And all you get was FM radio. They didn't have a cassette or MP3. or Most of y'all don't remember that. <laughs> or at least not right up here. We listen to the radio. Are you hung up on yours? Is that your God? Is that something that is, is not preeminent? Fear and worry, does that grab a hold of you? Does education, your experience, or your job? Are these things that rob God of His glory? Because if that's so, they will be judged. They will be ripped away from you. There's been a couple instances in my life that I can remember serious instances where God took something that I had made preeminent and had ripped it out from under me and then you're looking around kind of like what just happened what do you have that's more important than Christ in your life Sunday school answer is nothing let God answer last thing real quickly you see the protection of God look at verse 4 it's verse 4 standing by itself if you look at your Bible it's not with any other paragraph you have to understand it differently. Here's, here's the way it works. Verse 4 says, And as for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is His name, the Holy One of Israel. This scroll would be written down as the scroll of Isaiah and given to the children of Israel. Okay? They wouldn't, it's not given to the Babylonians. Yes, it's a prophecy against the Babylonians. But it's not given to the Babylonians. It's given to the people of Israel. And so this is kind of an aside where Isaiah says, Listen, congregation of Israel. Our Redeemer is the Lord of hosts. And that Lord in your Bibles is in all caps, right? That means the covenant name of God, Yahweh. 
The God who passed in front of Moses and he said, I'll, I'll, I'll shine my glory upon you and I'll shine my name upon you. My name is the, the, the God who has compassion on whom I have compassion, the God who has mercy on whom I show mercy. That's what God says his name is. And so Isaiah looks at the congregation he says, Our Redeemer is the Lord of hosts. It's his name, the Holy One of Israel. And so he says to those that would read his thing in captivity, he says, God is our Redeemer. I don't have time to develop it a whole lot, but think about it like this. You and I were created in the providential plan of God. You were born where you were born. You couldn't choose that. You couldn't choose your parents. You couldn't choose where you grew up. You couldn't choose what color your hair was going to be, how tall you were going to be. I don't know, maybe some of you guys could choose that, but most of you couldn't. So that's the providential working of God. In fact, it's providential that you're here today. There may, may be some of you here today that didn't mean to be here. There may be some of you here today that came with a friend and you didn't know what you were going to hear. There may be some of you here for the very first time. God's hand is in that. You're here because God wanted you here. You say, no, I'm not. Yes, you are. Just because you don't believe it doesn't make it so. The Bible is very clear. Every molecule, including you and your life, he's providential over. Now, the second half of the sermon was, not only are you here, but you have committed cosmic treason against God. The fact that we were rebels toward Him in our sin. The fact that we, as individuals, committed things that spurned the face of God. That looked in God's face and said, we'll do it our way. Thank you very much. The fact that that we chose sin over Him. Those things are the demonstrations of the pride that's in our life. And, and, and Isaiah looks at the congregation and he says, but there's a Redeemer. And he didn't say Jesus Christ is His name. He says the Lord God, the uh, Lord of hosts, the, the, the Lord of Israel, the God of angel armies is His name. And we have a revealed version. They saw the shadow. We see the, the real thing. We see the cross. We look back at the cross and see our redemption. And we see how that God paid the debt that we owed. And how that you and I, we're here today. We have rebelled against God. And yet, even in our rebellion, Jesus died for us on a cross. He took all the wrath that was due to you and I. That God, God said, I'm going to destroy you. You can't get away from it. You don't know where it's going to come from. And you can't stop it. That's what happened to Babylon. And that's what would have happened to you and I outside of Jesus Christ. But God sent Jesus Christ. He said, go to a cross. Take the punishment for them. Become their propitiation, their wrath bearer. The, the thing that would get their wrath. Not that God said, okay, he died. I'm just going to forget about my wrath against sin. He said, I'm going to pour it out on my son. And he's going to bear the weight of the suffering and the sin and everything. And he's going to put that on like a blanket. He's going to take all that of billions of people all at the time. And he's going to suffer the wrath of God. And he says to that, I will redeem my people. And Isaiah says to the children of Israel, there's a redeemer. I say to you this morning, there's a redeemer. 
whatever God has pointed out that's in your heart, whatever you know that's in your heart, God says, there's a Redeemer and you come unto me and I'll give you rest. He said, you come unto me and I will give you forgiveness because I've paid the debt for you. It's a debt that you couldn't pay like we sang this morning. My debt was paid. I'm confident that I'm covered by the blood of Christ. You can be if you confess and you walk and follow and trust in Him. Let me ask you, is your trust completely and wholly in Him? Is your only hope for heaven in Him? And the death, the burial, and the resurrection, the empty tomb of our Lord Jesus... He is the Redeemer, and no matter what you're going through, whether you're suffering because somebody has violated you or or done wrong towards you, has broken the, the commanded will of God against you, you can trust in a Redeemer who's good and wise, who can redeem that for a purpose. That's why Romans 8, 28 is true, right? We love the verse. God, he, he takes all things... For those who love God, and He works them according to His purpose. The reason that's true is because of providence, and because of His character, and because of a Redeemer. You may be here, and you not know what's going on in your life right now, and I don't know, but you don't know why it's happening. You can trust in a good, and a wise, and a sovereign God, who sent His Son to bear your pain, to direct your life. He loves you. And he's a faithful God. And the 70 years that Israel spent in captivity, they spent under a God they thought had abandoned them. But you have a Redeemer. God has not abandoned you. There's a song that I wish I could sing to you this morning. It's called The Prodigal. And I'm going to read you the verses. Because it's based on the the story that Jesus told. I'll read you the verses and I want you to listen for that story of the prodigal because this demonstrates redemption that I am offering you, that God is offering you this morning. Listen to the story. You held out your arms, I walked away. Insolent, I spurned your face. Squandering the gifts you gave to me. Holding close forbidden things. Destitute, a rebel still, a fool in all my pride. The world I once enjoyed is death to me. No joy, no hope, no life. Verse 2. Where now are the friends that I had bought? Gone with every penny lost. What hope could there be for such as I? Sold out to a world of lies. Oh, to see your face again. It seems so distant now. Could it be that you would take me back as a servant in your house? Verse 3. You held out your arms. I see them still. You never left. You never will. Running to embrace. And now I know your cords of love will always hold. Mercy's robe, a ring of grace. Such favor undeserved, you sing over me and celebrate the rebel, now your child. I beg of you to come to the Redeemer. 
our redemption is provided, lest you pass away upon it. Cling to it. Reach for it. We have a Redeemer who is waiting there with open arms to receive us even as a rebel. Let me pray for you. Dear Lord Jesus, we're grateful for the fact that you control everything. We're grateful for the fact that we can sit in this building and know that your sovereign hand is watching us and is holding us, caring for us, putting breath into our lungs and causing our hearts to beat. But Father, I know and you know that there are hearts within this room today that are mired in the, in the world of lies, caught up in secret sins and things that you will judge them for. Be they believers, Father, I pray that you would give them deliverance. Lord, I pray that this morning now would be the time that they come before you in brokenness and surrender. But God, be they unbelievers, people who have never trusted in you, never followed you, never come in humble pleading for salvation. God, I pray that today for them. God, that they would have the redemption that you have provided. Call out your church, Lord. Be glorified. Draw people to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And amen.